0: So there was a time when I traveled around the world, I began my journey, I, I backpacked across, backpacks across uh, 26 countries in one year, don't do it. Um, I began my journey in South Korea, and there were two cities in particular that I was staying at because of the people who were housing me there. One place was called Pyeongtaek, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Korean language, no, I was not in North Korea, and it sounds a lot like the capital of North Korea, I assure you it was not. The second city was Seoul, okay? So we have Pyeongtaek and we have Seoul, Seoul is the capital of South Korea, and it really is a city that never sleeps. I remember waking up at 3 in the morning and it was rush hour, all right. (laughs) Pyeongtaek is an hour outside of Seoul, south, and it would be considered rural, maybe uh, a bit country. And yes, they had a movie theater, they had some cafes, some restaurants in that area, but really surrounding that entire area was just really just pastures and a lot of fields surrounded by cows grazing alongside the road. And when I was in Pyeongtaek, uh, I, I met a lot of good friends there, a lot of friends. And, and, and they would say simple stuff, like, David, hey, you know, you want to hang out, you want to go eat something simple, go to the movies perhaps, or, or just kind of just walk around. And, and the people there are really down to earth, and I appreciated that. These quasi-country folk, they even, even though they were just only an hour away from the crazy big city of Seoul, these people they were nice. And, and I think they were just kind of things are set at a slower pace there. Seoul, on the other hand, was a different animal. Twice, literally twice, I had two people in frustration yell at me for not knowing who they were. Okay? One time, it was at a prestigious apartment elevator ride up. The elevator door opened. I was on my way to the seventh, 70th floor. Some girl comes in, and then during the elevator ride, she was shocked that I did not know who she was. I still don't know who she is. <laughs> she literally pouted like a five-year-old girl, like a five-year-old child, and she lashed out at me, don't you know who I am? And by the way, I was doing what I think most sane people do in elevators, which is try not to breathe, don't make eye contact with people, and just look intently at the numbers going up and down, right? That's all. You don't, you don't, commu- you don't relate with people around you, right? You just kind of stand there, and there she goes, blasting me. The second time was again in Seoul, parked right outside the apartment I was staying in, was this amazing and beautiful, gorgeous, silver Ferrari Enzo, okay? Probably worth today about three million dollars. No joke. Beautiful car. Naturally, as a car enthusiast, I had to go and I had to take a look and I wanted to take a picture. So I go up there, kind of creeping up. It was a very uh, quiet street in the middle of Seoul. There's not a lot of things going on. Maybe they kind of blocked it off and there's this Ferrari in the middle against the curb. And I go up there and as I approach the car, the door swings open and out comes this young lady. And she goes, do you want to take a picture? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely, that would be great. I had, my pic- I had my camera, and so there I was. I kind of stood back, I had my camera, ready to take a picture. And as I was ready to take a picture, I realized she was sitting on against the car. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> she got so upset that I would not take a picture of her with that car. I mean, why would I ruin a perfectly good picture, Right. And so she said, much like the elevator princess, I kid you not, these are all factual stories. She said, don't you know who I am? <laughs> what do you say to that? I'm like, uh, like, I don't know. And then she said something along the lines of, my father owns Hyundai, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, who doesn't? Everyone says their father owns Hyundai these days, right? And so with a string of Korean profanity, I slowly kind of backed away from the Ferrari princess. One might think that only things like that happen in Korea. No. There's been celebrities in the U.S., and maybe you've seen this in tabloids or in the videos of YouTube, when they get caught for DUI or for speeding, they'll say to the cop, don't you know who I am? I remember a few years ago, Chris Tucker, this is right after hour. he got all super famous, and he was driving his... Coop Bentley, and he got pulled over in Las Vegas. The cop says, you've been going fast. You know how fast you're going? And Chris Tucker in his high-pitched voice says, don't you know who I am? He said, don't you know who I am? It's not just the over-rich of celebrities, but a lot of people feel entitled and say, don't you know who I am? In fact, even in churches, whenever maybe a new member wants to mix things up and add a different program... It'll be the older member, the, fo- the member who's been here a little bit longer, who will say, you know what, we're not going to do that. You know why? it won't work. I've been through it all. Don't you know who I am? I've been here before you got here. Look, in our text today, we have Jesus intentionally leaving the center, the hubbub of wealth and power, and with all his craziness, and there he is kind of moving on towards this rural, seemingly insignificant part of the country What's Jesus doing here? That's what we're going to see today. I got a couple points to make, okay? First is this. Jesus cares about the nobodies. Jesus cares about the nobodies. So back in chapter 3, we spoke about Nicodemus. Remember that guy? The guy had it all. He did it all. He was it all. Wealth, power, prominence, great reputation, man of integrity, great character. So the comparison was that maybe we all want to kind of be like him. But when Jesus confronted this man who seemed to have it all, this guy who seemed to have done it all, Jesus says, yeah, you still kind of missed the kingdom of God. You still kind of missed the point here. What's amazing about the text for today is how we see the script reversed because maybe some of you guys were able to relate to Nicodemus. Maybe there's a lot of good things going on in your life. There's a lot of good things that you have accomplished. You're making some good money now and you're well-liked by, by those around you. Maybe, in fact, you got a good pedigree. Mom and dad are still together, right? You're raising a Christian household. You've attended all the Sunday schools growing up, so you know all the answers. And so you feel like you can relate to Nicodemus. Or maybe you feel like you don't identify with Nicodemus at all. You don't feel powerful. You don't feel prominent. You're you're not wealthy. And maybe even your reputation is really less than stellar. I.e., if you met up with a friend from the past, they'd be shocked to see that that you're a Christian. They'd be shocked. What? You you go to church? you, You? You go to church now? You give? To charity now? You go to on missions now? <laughs> really, you? Our text today is for you then. It is for the nobodies, it's for those who have failed and failed many, many times, it's for those who can't just seem to get their lives in order. Okay? It's for those who believe that they have disappointed mom and dad and brother and sister, husband and wife, and their children. They have disappointed everyone in their lives, and so they've really been carrying this type of baggage of guilt and baggage of shame. Really, this is for the nobodies. It is for us. Can everyone say, Jesus cares for me, the nobody? So let's get into the story. Jesus spoke with a very interesting person, Now, I know that we're kind of tempted to place ourselves into the story and where we kind of fit in it all, and I think that's okay. But as we draw upon similarities, I really hope that throughout the entire sermon that you fix your gaze upon Jesus the entire time, and you'll see, man, Jesus, you're awesome. You are marvelous, okay? Now, here's a couple sub points under my first point. This is, and this is the first one. This nobody that Jesus cared for was a nobody because she was a woman. Because she was a woman. Okay, so I think we're all accustomed to the fact that women are equal with men, as in there's nothing inferior about being a woman. There's nothing superior about being a male. Yeah, men are able to maybe run faster and bench more and jump higher, but here's the thing. After you've seen your wife push out not only one human being out, but two, tell me who's really physically more capable. Okay? It's shocking. Truth be told, I was about to faint just being there. That's another the story. In this day and age, we see women and men as equals, or at least we ought to, right? Equal value. No one is better or worse than the other. That was, however, by no means the outlook in Jesus' day. Women were not considered equal at all. In fact, this, uh, this woman that Jesus was speaking to was most likely illiterate. Why was she illiterate? Because she was never given the same opportunity for education as men did. Jesus, he really shouldn't have been speaking to this woman, not because he was a man and this was a public setting, but because Jesus was considered respected. He was considered a teacher. He was a rabbi. A rabbi. Rabbis were forbidden to greet women in public. In fact, a rabbi might not even speak to their own daughter or their own wife or their own sister if they were to see them in public. In fact, there's something called the bleeding Pharisees, where they would close their eyes the moment that they see a woman, and they would avoid and avert their gaze, and their eyes would be closed so much so that they would run into walls. True story. And they believed, and they did this because they believed that women were second-rate citizens, not worth giving any attention to. And it would be one thing to see a woman, but then to actually sit and engage in conversation with one? Are you kidding me? That's social suicide. That would hurt your reputation like crazy. And yet we see this amazing, beautiful Savior of ours, Jesus, speaking to this common woman. Why? Jesus doesn't care. He cares for the nobodies. Can you hear a name into that? A lesson for this day where it seems like almost all these big shot CEOs, producers, bosses, whoever are being called out for the way that they treat women. On this Father's Day, let me say this. To the men who have daughters, be careful how you talk to them by being careful how you talk to mom, your wife. Lest your daughter begin to think that yelling and speaking negatively and speaking down and speaking critically is the norm, and they'll soon be accepting of that kind of treatment when they get older. To the men on this Father's Day, may we never look down or speak down to women. Amen, men? And to the ladies, may you also never speak down to one another. Amen, ladies? Throughout the Gospels, Jesus' Jesus' concern for women and his welcoming of women as his disciples was a radical break with social convention. Remember the resurrection story? Who was it whom God chose to first hear about Jesus' resurrection? It was the women. And when they went and shared, how were they received? The men did not believe him. They didn't believe him. Why would they? Women back then held no testimony. Their words held no value. So why on earth would they be entrusted with this amazing, life-shattering, important announcement? It was intentional. God values women. Our Savior values the nobodies. Jesus cared about the nobodies. Folks, there is a category of nobodies in our lives. Do you know that? Okay, y'all might think that you're a really super PC and accepting and loving everyone. Ah, uh, there is someone or some people, some ones in our mind or in our lives who we would deem as a nobody. Someone that we would not engage with. Someone that we would simply say it would be a waste of time to befriend and to communicate and spend any energy in. It is that person that the Lord is calling you out on. In the eyes of God, no one, no one is a second-rate citizen. Love them all, he says. Amen? Not only that, not only was she a nobody because she was a woman, she was a nobody that Jesus cared for because she was a Samaritan. This is an even greater barrier than the whole gender issue. In verse 9, if you read the footnote, another way of understanding that Jews and Samaritans didn't associate was that Jews did not use the dishes Samaritans have already used. That's an interesting line right there. Now, many of us only know the civil rights from the textbooks that we read, from the museums that we visit, and from the movies that we watch. During those days, if a black person came into a restaurant, he most likely, probably would, not, would never be served at all. But on the off chance that they did serve him, when he finished eating, the server, the waiter, would intentionally get the plate, and drop the dishes on the floor right before the very eyes of the black patron. Do you get the point here? Why? Because for them, their understanding is whites don't eat off dishes that blacks have used. That was the type of hatred and prejudice between the races, so much in the same way that it was the same situation between the Jews and the Samaritans. And I want to explain to you. After the glory days of Israel, about 1,000 B.C., during the days of the reign of King David and Solomon, and it split, that kingdom split. We got the upper kingdom, the northern kingdom called Israel, and they have 10 tribes, right? And then we have the southern kingdom with two tribes called Judah. Very good, my Bible survey class, right? (laughs) That division happened for 200 years. In fact, it was never reconciled. But here's the thing in 722 BC, Israel, right, the top, the northern kingdom, was and had a capital called Samaria. They were invaded by the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians, they were brutal by nature. And they loved doing this weird thing, eradicating the purity and the identity of the nations that they conquered. And so what they would do is they would carry off a large portion of the prominent people out to other lands, and at the same time, they would import other citizens that they've conquered from other nations into that recently conquered land, and they would have all the people after several years as intermarry, and guess what? All the racial, and all the cultural, and all the political identity was forever lost. Okay. That was the fate of Israel, which is why they're also referred to as the Ten Lost Tribes. Meanwhile, in the southern kingdom, Judah, it survived for another 136 years before they were conquered by the Babylonians who were, at that point, the new world power. But unlike the Assyrians who are all about integrating and mixing and making you lose your identity, the Babylonians, they had a different policy. Even though they carried thousands of Jews back to Babylon as slaves, the Jews were still able to maintain their racial and cultural identity. And so after 70 years, the Persians overran the, Bab- overran the Babylonians. The Jews were allowed to return to their own land. You guys all still with me? So back in the land during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, what what did the Jews find? That they found themselves to be right next door to these people called the Samaritans. It was a hodgepodge of mixture of Jews and everyone else, this group of mixed folks who now worshipped a mixed religion of Judaism and everything else. And so, the people who returned from Babylon and who were experiencing at this time a great revival, God was doing some amazing stuff. And the fact that they were celebrating that their faith persevered for the past 70 years, they were certainly not about to associate and mingle with those who were so racially and so religiously messed up, mixed up, and tainted. And so, the animosity man, that relationship continued on and on for 400 years until Jesus' time. Are you beginning to see the point here? The Jews, they saw the Samaritans as unclean, idolatrous, compromising, half-breed, illegitimate, less-than-human bastards. That's what they saw him as, human trash. But then we have here Jesus come here, sitting on the side of the well, talking, ministering, showing concern for this woman, who is a Samaritan so we might think well Pastor David given the circumstances I think I'd do the same thing too I mean that woman really had no choice in, in the way that she grew up this is, she, didn't, she didn't want to have that crazy family she, she, she didn't know what was going on I mean she was born into it right you should give her a break fine then But it wasn't just her gender or her nationality that made her nobody. It was also her questionable morals. She wasn't just someone who had no choice in who she was. She was also someone who was fully aware of her sins and the fact that she kept committing them. Okay, so here we are, and it's the sixth hour, meaning it is noon. It's the hottest time of the day. I don't play golf, so don't invite me. But the handful of times I have, And I had to make a reservation, and I always do it last minute because, again, I don't want to play. But when I do make that reservation, and I say, oh, man, let me look for that 7 a.m. slot, right? It's booked. But what time is always available? 12 o'clock. Why? Because no one wants to start their game getting fried. It's the hottest time of the day. It's the hottest time of day. It's so hard, no one wants to start their game then. Similarly, nobody went to the well at noon. It was typically done early in the morning or late in the afternoon, but it was never done during the peak heat of the day. Not only that, she was alone. She was alone. The town well was like, think of it as like the water cooler at work. It's where people congregated, they gossiped, they talked, and they caught up on news. It's where you go visit your friends. It's where you would hang out. But here is this woman. She's all alone in the peak heat of the day. And why was she even there? It doesn't actually make sense that she was there. It doesn't make any sense because this well that she was at was half a mile away from her own town. There was water in her town. I mean, sure, this was a historic well and, and this was the well of Jacob, but this woman, she's not some fanatic. She's not some tourist who was like, oh, I got to check out this really cool well. Why would she come here on the outskirts of town all alone in the heat of the day? I don't think it's difficult to figure out. She has been through five husbands and is now shacking up and sleeping with a guy who is not her husband. Let's be real here, okay? <clears throat> Look. I know we've all made mistakes and I know the whole idea, we don't want to judge people, I get that. But think about even in today's time, with super liberal and progressive under view of perspective or stance on relationships and sex and marriage. I mean, seriously, listen, seriously, how judged would a woman who's been married five times and is now sleeping with another guy be today? Still be judged, wouldn't she? How many women do you personally know who's had that kind of reputation. That kind of news would circulate a lot, and where even, I think, really, really messed up people would say, wow, yeah, that's a bit much. Where even Hollywood celebrities would say, yeah, you got to get your act together. Like, that's how bad it was. You see, even in the Samaritan city, even among the women there, this lady was an outcast. It's one thing to be shunned by the elitist Jews. It's another thing to be shunned by your fellow peers. And that's where Jesus, maybe, maybe we're all thinking, or maybe the people thought, doesn't he know who he's talking to? This could hurt his testimony. What kind of a person will people think this great rabbi is if he's associating with these low-life persons? It's not just a Samaritan woman. Fine, I get that. But she's just a sinner times sinner. What if the church finds out that he's making friends with a woman like this? Jesus does not care. He doesn't care about our inflated, self-righteous, comparative holiness outlook on life and people. Jesus, he doesn't complicate things because Jesus is all for the nobodies. He's all for the outcasts. He's all for those who maybe smell, who are addicted, who have crazy past baggage, who are whorish and who are truly messed up from head to toe and from heart to mind. Why? Because for him, it is only this. I care for you. All the other stuff about your life. The baggages, the things that just make you so messed up. Uh-uh. I care for you. What I love about Shining Star, and I'm not just saying this. What I love about Shining Star and his people here is that we don't care what you look like. We don't care where you've come from. We don't care what your reputation is. I believe the gospel has shaped the men and women here who just, who know, who know that just as our God has given us a chance and, and asked that we come to him just as we are, that we are also to give a chance to those who come through these doors just as they are. Amen? I just pray that Shining Star never closes doors to those who are looking for Christ, who are never looking for Christ in all their messy brokenness. So here's my second and final point. Only Jesus can satisfy our soul. You know, our country's always been about <clears throat> debating welfare reform. It's a debate about what is considered more compassionate. Giving a job with the possibility of, a, of having a future or sending them welfare check, a welfare check every month so that, you know, they could have food and sustenance because they're in dire need. And so a question we need to ask is, what does it really mean to care for people? What does it really mean to care for people? Some people would answer, well, it's about accepting them, right? It's about accepting them just as they are, being non judgmental. It's about being there for them. It's about listening without commenting uh, on what to say. It's about affirming their choices because we believe in self autonomy. I respect them. While Jesus certainly fed the poor, And he had certainly taken care of those in need. He was never short-sighted in his compassion, and neither should we be. Look at how Jesus deals with this woman, okay? He doesn't start off with a sermon. He doesn't stand on the soapbox to preach at her all the ways that she can better yourself, get better. What are you doing? Fix your life. He doesn't start accusing her of all the wrong things that she's been doing in her life. No, Jesus begins where she is. Okay, it's not about where she ought to be. You guys feel me here? It's about where she is. Where is she? She's feeling hot and she is deeply thirsty. So in verse 7, he says, give me a drink. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus first addressed her, and in the way he addressed her, in admitting that he was thirsty, he began to break down a thousand-year barrier. He addressed her not as just something, not just as some project, but as a person. He addressed her as a human, as someone who's worth talking to. She was somebody just like him. Little things matter, folks. It's not just what comes out of your mouth, it's the non-verbal things that make a difference too. I wanna tell you this, many years ago, I remember when I was up in Maryland, I went to go get gas. Now I love gas stations because they have drinks and candy. That's why I love vending machines too. Anyway, so I go inside and I pick up a hot cup of coffee and I go to the cashier and he says something to the, uh, whatever, like $1.50 or $2 or something like that. And so without looking, knowing how much cash I had in my wallet, without looking, I pull out my wallet and I take out a $5 bill. Again, I wasn't looking and I was looking, in fact, and shocked at the shockingly large assortment of starbursts that lay before me. Right? So I pulling out my wallet, I put down a five, and I'm looking for which one I want there. But as I'm about to pick my candy, the cashier yells at me. By the way, you'll notice the theme in today's sermon, how many times i managed to tick people off. <laughs> Back to the story. So as my head is down, as I'm trying to pick my candy, he yells, Hey man, what's the matter with you? Don't you see my hand? So, shocked (laughs) that a a grown man was yelling at a grown man, I kind of sheepishly look up, and I see his hand hovering over the counter, and underneath his hand was that $5 bill that I just placed down. I didn't understand. I said, I'm sorry, I, I didn't see your hand. And he goes, yeah, right. All the time, you, and he said an expletive, and he says, you think you can treat people this way? I apologize again for the confusion because I was so crazy confused at that time. I was like, oh man, did he want a high five? Did I leave him, did I leave him high? <laughs> did I accidentally spill some coffee on the counter? What's going on here? I apologize again for the confusion. Later on, I asked a friend of mine, he's a pastor. And he was African-American, he said this. I said, what happened? And he goes, was was this guy young or old? I said, mid-50s or so. And he goes, look, I don't know if this is it, but let me tell you something. During the Rodney King South Central riots in L.A., do you know how some of the black folks in the neighborhoods targeted specific stores? It wasn't all of them who did this, but many of them, from what I heard, he said this. It was all the merchants who looked down on the black people, and especially in when they made that transaction, when they wanted to sell something. You see, these merchants, they would never put the money back or the change back in the hands of the black man because they never wanted to make contact with the black man. They put it on the counter, even if that person had their hands right out. And he goes, well, I don't know if this was it. But maybe, and this is him telling me, maybe this was just a knee jerk reaction from a very real flashback of racism and prejudice. I was just taken aback. Just wow. Folks, I'll tell you right now, I didn't lose any sleep over this event. I didn't. I have no guilt. This, this was an innocent thing. I, I did not know. But what I have learned is that things like that event do matter. Had I been more maybe aware, self-aware, a little more cognizant and placed the money in his palm, a little and seemingly insignificant as it might be, that would have been like Jesus saying, would you give me a drink? It would have been a moment where this black man would have seen an Asian face and would know at that moment that he was being treated like an equal. That this Asian man At that moment, we'd be able to see not just a black face behind the counter, but a man with a soul, a man with pain, a man with a story, and a man who was worth caring for. Folks, don't ever dehumanize people, okay? Don't ever dehumanize people who are hurting and broken around you. Don't see them as projects or as case studies or as charities. See them as those who are made in the image of God Ask for a drink like Jesus did. Bring yourself down from your ivory tower and get to know them. Amen? But you see, Jesus' agenda was more than just making this woman feel accepted. Jesus came to address the desperate spiritual drought of her life because she was estranged. She was separated from the God who was the wellspring of life. Jesus knew what her real needs were. You see, Jesus is kinda amazing. He walked on water. You guys remember that? Right? He he fed thousands with just a couple loaves of bread? Like he's he's pretty he's pretty awesome. He's pretty powerful. He could have fixed her reputation like that. He could have Thanosed her. Right? <laughs> That's a bad metaphor. He killed people. Okay, so you get what I'm saying. Right? He could have he he made people forget about her reputation and all the disparaging things about her. And he could have just completely given her a brand new life in that sense because more than her past of someone who slept around, Jesus actually knew what her greatest issue was. Jesus actually knew what her greatest problem was. You see in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, it says this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug for themselves their own cisterns that cannot, that will not contain water. Jesus begins to build bridges to move from this physical need for water to this thirst for living God. And thing is, she doesn't really understand what's going on. She doesn't understand what he's talking about at first. first. Actually, she's thinking kind of materialistically, like you and I would maybe think. But Jesus gently presses on. He says, if you read the interaction, the woman uses the word well, while Jesus uses the word spring of water. She uses the well, well, well. He says spring, spring, spring. What's the difference? Spring water or living water was considered running water. And so it seems that Jesus was maybe a bit irreverent from her response. So she's saying this, okay? "Um, Are you greater than our father Jacob? Meaning this, um, Jesus, you're talking about living water here. If there was living, running water, if there was a spring here, don't you think that father Jacob would have done or have, have gone after that other than dig this well? Do you think that you are smarter than our father Jacob? Like, come on, Jesus, what are you talking about? Who do you think you are? But Jesus, he keeps probing. He picks up on the burden of coming to draw water every day after day after day. Think about the stress in that. I mean, who's been tired of all that? Who here is tired of the mundane tasks of life? Who here has at one point during the week, probably tomorrow on Monday, you'll look at yourself in your cubicle, you'll look at all your spreadsheets and all this stuff, and you'll say this, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my life? I'm just wearing myself out. Maybe you're even tired of your existence too. Folks, that weariness with life that Jesus knows that that woman is feeling, this feeling of weariness that many of us undoubtedly feel, folks, that is a taste of spiritual thirst that we all have. That weariness that I want to give up. I am so tired. I want to just relinquish and just give up everything. That is You see a little taste of the spiritual thirst that we all have. You see the life of burden that wears us down and then turns us to dust wasn't the original plan. We are this way because of the sin that has separated us from God. Because of God's wrath, because of our curse, we will live out the remaining years of our lives working and wrestling and toiling with work and of nature and all that stuff. And we'll be burdened and then we're going to die. And because of this separation from God, our souls ache. This fatigue that you're facing, your souls are aching. Your souls are thirsting because it is aching for something real in this phony world. Our souls are aching for something enduring in a world that's constantly changing. Our souls are aching for something satisfying in a world that's filled with only cheap thrills. Brothers and sisters, our souls are yearning for something eternal in this dying world. You, we, all have a thirst for the living God, whether you know it or not. And this lady, she doesn't get it quite yet. Because she just wants what Jesus has, to not thirst again, so that she doesn't have to come to this well again. So from verses 16 and 18, Jesus addressed her need head on, point blank. He calls her out on her understanding of intimacy. Why does this woman have five husbands? You see, because there is a thirst in her soul, which she is trying to find some man to fill. She is thirsty for a relationship that satisfies, and yet, not after one, but two, and three, and four, five men, she's still unable to realize that no one will do. I bet in her mind, she thinks, man, what is wrong with everyone? Where are all the good guys? Sisters, can hear, "Mm mm-hmm? Yeah, don't pretend like you haven't thought that. Where are all the good guys out there? Where is the man I can finally settle down with? The one who will be there for me. The one who will protect me. The one who will be my everything. She's failed. This lady, the Samaritan woman, has failed to realize that the problem isn't with the men that she's been with. The problem is her spiritual condition. It's the spiritual condition she has that within her, there is a relational desert in her life that no amount of wells can save. Okay? But only a living water. Only a running water. Only the spring of life that is found in the very person that she's speaking to. We can never know this living water that Jesus brings until we admit our desperate need. And that's what this question does for this woman. Because Jesus says, and he's confronting her with her need. You see, she would love to have hid her reputation, and, but when Jesus puts his finger on it, she hides no longer. Because if you read on, we find her shortly running off to tell everyone, come, see a man who has told me all that I have ever done. Could this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? Our souls are crying out today, folks. I am thirsty, Lord. Maybe you're not thinking that now. Maybe you're not saying that now. But your constant, endless search for something, relationship after relationship, promotion after promotion, degree after degree, finding pleasure after pleasure, success after success, is the greatest indication that, yes, you are searching for something bigger, something greater. You are thirsty, And you don't even know it. You are thirsty. Jesus will not compete with other things like the Samaritan woman. Jesus wants you to see the thing that you have pursued will fail and has failed. In Jesus, you will taste sins forgiven. In Jesus, you will taste of life worth something. The taste of peace in your heart of hearts. The taste of the love of Jesus and the love of of his people. You will see and taste that the Lord is good. In Christ. Jesus cares about the nobodies, and I praise God for that because I'm a nobody. So he says, Come to me. Come to me. For only I can satisfy your thirsty soul. Amen? Amen. Let's bow, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the, this moment of clarity. I, I hope and pray it was a moment of clarity for us. This isn't to say that we shouldn't aspire and try to improve ourselves and try to work hard. And, no. Father, forgive us if we get that twisted. But Lord, help us know that there, it is a never-ending search if we don't meet with you. Open our eyes, Lord, to the amazing truth that you are the wellspring of life. That Jesus, in you, we can dance around in the river of joy. That in you, Jesus, true satisfaction, contentment, lies. May right now we feel this really kind of down and out. Remind us, Lord, that this brokenness that you see in us, the sinfulness that you see in us, this feeling of guilt and shame that you see in us, this makes us a nobody. And you care for us. That you'd be willing to sit down at the well next to someone here like me like that Samaritan lady who was alone during the peak heat of the day at the outskirts of her city. Feeling completely alienated and forsaken. And yet, Jesus, it was you who left the city of power and wealth and influence and prestige and you made your way to find her. Christ Jesus, you are the Savior. You are the one who looks for his sheep. Folks, let me give you guys a moment as you pray and just prepare your hearts and meditation for what you just heard. Surrender. Surrender. I am thirsty. And I want to know you more. Maybe even on this Father's Day, there's repenting needed. Dad, I forgive you. Husband, I forgive you. Maybe for husbands, we need to say, wife, will you forgive me? Okay, let's pray this time.